We appreciate so much your presence tonight. We have a good number present in spite of the cool, damp weather. And uh, rain is in the forecast, but I think snow is in the offing. And uh, Barry Coon and I have been debating that out there, whether it's going to snow or rain. And so we're not going to get in the weather business, though, I don't think anytime soon. But we're proud to have all of you here tonight. And we appreciate uh, Barry leading us in a hymn and R.W. leading us in a good moment of prayer. We're studying in John chapter 15. So be turning there and uh, read along with us as we read the remainder of that chapter beginning in verse 18 and reading through the final verse, which is verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus is talking to his disciples, and here is what he says in this section. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. <clears throat> John 14 through 16 have been really well described as the farewell discourse of our Lord. He is going to be going to the cross before long, and uh, the night of his arrest, these things that we have been studying in John 14 and 15 were being said to the disciples. This seems to have been in private. Just Jesus and the disciples. He was preparing them for that which was ahead. It was addressed to them for several reasons. I want to mention about eight reasons why this discourse was delivered to the apostles. First of all, it was to comfort their troubled hearts. That's how John 14 begins. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. You remember that beautiful passage. So he was delivering this discourse to comfort their hearts, which were troubled because of his imminent departure. He's telling them, I'm going to be leaving you. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had anybody to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be around here much longer. 
and they they sense that they don't have much time left because of uh, health reasons that uh, are very obvious and so on. And uh, that's never a good thing to hear. But that's what Jesus was telling them. I'm going to die. I'm going to uh, be killed. And he even told them who was going to do it. So he wanted to comfort them. We all need to be comforted from time to time. The second reason was to answer their questions. Have you noticed how many questions were posed by the disciples during this particular section of Scripture? Question after question is asked by them of the Lord. You know, what about this? How can we know the way? They, Philip wanted to know things. Judas, not his chariot, wanted to know things. They all were asking questions, and he wanted to answer those questions. And I would suggest to you that he has the answer for all our questions. I think that's a really good point for us to remember. Jesus has the answer to our questions. Third reason was to reassure them of his and the Father's love for them. Everybody needs to know that they're loved. That's something that little children need to learn from early on. You're loved. That love doesn't mean now that they can't be disciplined and corrected and all of that. Some people seem to maybe think that that is the case, but uh, love is not just letting a child do anything he wants to. Uh, you have to have some guidance, and love involves the principle of correction and discipline. But he reassures them, you are loved by me. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And we're going to find in this section that there is a shift from Jesus calling the apostles his friends, our servants rather, to calling them his friends. There's, that's an important point to remember, and we'll elaborate on it more later, Lord willing. He also spoke these words to exhort them to love one another and to be united in the tough times that were coming. And you see that played out in the book of Acts. I'm sure there were those who tried to put a pit one apostle against another. But you remember uh, Peter said, Paul wrote some things that were are difficult to understand. But he spoke in glowing terms about Paul. He was not jealous because Paul was uh, coming to the forefront and Peter sort of fading into the background. They were both very prominent men in the work of the Lord, but they worked together. Even they were united, though we don't know that Peter knew Paul uh, during the time of uh, Jesus' ministry uh, and with Peter being with him all the time. Then uh, he wrote them, uh, he uh, spoke these words to them in the fifth place to inform them of the coming of another comforter, which would be the Holy Spirit, who would guide them into all truth. The Spirit was to be sent by him and the Father after his departure from them and his return to the Father. He said, I will send another comforter. He spoke these words to inform them also that they were no longer his servants, but his friends. Now, I mentioned that a minute ago, but look at uh, chapter 16, 
No, chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, that to lay down, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now listen to verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. Think about it for a moment. What do you do normally with your very best friend? Do you keep any secrets from them? Usually you tell them, you talk to a friend about things that you won't talk to anybody else about. And I think that's the very idea that the Lord is expressing here. I am telling you the most important things to me. You're no longer my servants, but you're my friends. I am confiding in you all of the things that you need to know telling you the things of the Father that He taught me or told me before I came to earth, and now I'm passing them on to you. Now, a servant doesn't always know what the Lord is doing. Think about that. When those masters that Jesus talked about went into a far country, did their servants always know what, exactly what their master was doing, what he was up to? No, they, they couldn't have known that because they weren't anywhere around him. They couldn't have kept up with him. He didn't have to tell them why he was going or where he was going. He was just leaving. I'm going, I'll be back later, and we'll settle up. So he didn't have to explain himself to them. And Jesus doesn't have to to the apostles, and he doesn't have to to us. But he does reveal his will to us, the most important and intimate details about life, righteousness, truth, heaven, hell, He's revealed all those things to us because He wants us to be a friend and He wants to be our friend. He laid down His life for us. He also wrote these words, or spoke these words to them to fortify and brace them for their rejection by the world. And that's what we're reading about, or we're reading about in our text a few moments ago. Now, we'll talk about this later too, but I want you to keep in mind that the farewell discourse makes up chapters 15 and 16, or 14, 15, and 16. What do you find in chapter 17? The Lord's Prayer. He closed this discourse with a prayer, and we'll study that hopefully in great detail when we get to it. Jesus said, beginning in our uh, verse 18 of John 15, that the apostles should expect and be prepared for the world's hatred. You are going to be hated by the world. And notice that he mentions two things immediately. First, he had just commanded their mutual love for one another. He said, now that will aid you. That'll be an inside relationship. You'll be able to encourage one another, to lift up one another, to hold up one another's hands as Aaron and her did, Moses' hand, you know. 
When we get tired and start sagging with the battle and start switching the other way, and so Aaron and her held his hand up to hold that rod. And we need to hold up one another's hands and encourage one another. He tells them about what will happen, what needs to happen inside. Then he tells them what's going to happen outside. From the outside, you are going to be met with intense hatred. There are going to be people who will hate you. Why did, would they hate them? Because they hated Jesus. And if they were preaching and teaching in Jesus' name, those who hated Jesus would continue to hate them, and it would probably intensify over time. In verse 19, you'll notice that he said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Doesn't the world do that? People who are worldly usually get along pretty good. And one thing you can always count on, they will always unite against that which they hate. They might not even get along too well uh, sometimes, and yet they will unite. good example of that in the uh, New Testament are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were political enemies, religious enemies. But what did they do when it came to Jesus? Anybody remember? They joined forces against him, didn't they? They would get along when it came to opposing Jesus. They didn't agree, especially on the doctrine of the resurrection. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees said, no, can't accept that, can't teach that, and on some other issues too. But they would join forces to try to destroy Christ. And I've known of people that, known some people personally, did not agree or do not agree religiously themselves, but they will agree in their attacks against the Lord's church. I've seen that happen and heard that happen. Now, notice the world loves its own. That's demonstrated throughout the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? Not only his ministry, but during his arrest, Look at those who joined forces to come and get him, take him captive and lead him back to be tried. And then notice how you have, again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and others joining forces. If I remember correctly, the Sadducees pretty well controlled the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees were just as adamant as they were about putting Jesus to death. And so they worked together. And... As you read that and, and think about the crucifixion, you have Romans and you have Jewish people. And the Romans would have been primarily Gentiles, if not all Gentiles. You had the Jews and the Gentiles both represented uh, at that time. So we see, as Miss Nemple said a minute ago, the same thing happening uh, today. Jesus reminds them in the next verse, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. Now, what did he say to them? A servant is not greater than his master. Why would you think a servant of the master would get by without having opposition if he is serving his master 
and teaching what his master once taught, why would those who have opposed the master not oppose the servants who are doing his bidding? That just makes sense, doesn't it? If there's opposition against the master, then there's going to be opposition against the uh, servants who carry out the will of the master. So he makes two observations that I think are very important. Number one, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But the second one is interesting. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That tells you that there are two distinct classes of people in the world. There are believers and unbelievers. There are righteous people and wicked people. That's always been true, and it's still true today. By the time John wrote this record of Jesus' life, that would come nearer to the end of the first century. Church was established sometime around A.D. 33, depending on which calendar you use. Some say A.D. 30, some say A.D. 33. But uh, Jesus' life, our ministry had lasted about three years, something like that. So there's been a, a time of maybe... John was written somewhere A.D. 90, somewhere like that. You can see about 60 years would have elapsed. And now John is writing about the life of Christ. And by that time, these, the brethren who were originally reading it would have observed all of these things coming to pass, just as Jesus had taught them. Now, both things that he said, those two conditional statements that he made, if, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Because the apostles were going to be teaching the very same things that Jesus taught. They'd be teaching his will. They would be his ambassadors and carrying his will into all the world. You remember the statement that was made about uh, a group of people? And of them, it was said that they heard Jesus gladly. Who were those people? Anybody remember? Come on. Everybody wake up. Don't you remember that statement? The common people heard him gladly. These were people who were poor. They were just regular, everyday folks. They were not among the elite religious leaders. They were not among the high priests and the Sanhedrin, all that. They were just common, everyday people. They loved to come out when Jesus was in town and hear what he had to say. <clears throat> there were multitudes, vast multitudes, that came out and heard him. But there were always those who said, we need to get rid of him. They refused to listen to him. Now I want you to look with me for a few minutes about how that played out. Those people who would hear the apostles gladly were the same people, same type people that heard the Lord gladly. The people who would persecute the apostles would be the same type people that persecuted Christ. 
And that's what he's telling them in this passage. The rich and the powerful and the sensual, generally speaking, rejected the apostles' doctrine because they had rejected the doctrine of Christ when he taught it orally and personally to them. Now look at how that plays out in the book of Acts. How many people do you think were present on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that heard the apostles preach after the Spirit came upon them? We don't have any way to know exactly. But Josephus and others mentions the fact that sometimes there would be maybe 100,000 people in Jerusalem at that time of the year. And obviously there was a huge, huge crowd of people that gathered to hear what the apostles had to say on the day of Pentecost. So let's say they had an audience of ten to 15,000 that heard the apostles preach on the day of Pentecost. How many of those people believed what they preached on that day? About 3,000. Now, as you proceed through the book of Acts, notice the church grows pretty rapidly. The... Uh, the apostles were preaching, and they would preach some more. In Acts chapter 4, they ended up being taken into custody because they were preaching about the resurrection. And it is said that the, cap the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, quote, came upon them. And the result was that they took them into custody. That's in Acts 4, verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, was it 5,000 on that occasion, or about 2,000 more added to about the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost? But we see more and more people are being added to that number. Their trial and the results follow in chapter 4. And then by the time you get to verse 32 in chapter 4, the, the believers are described as the multitude of believers. What's happening? They are keeping the word of the apostles just like Jesus said they would. What he told the apostles in John 15 is being fulfilled. Some are accepting your teachings, while others are rejecting it and persecuting you. And so the words of Jesus are proving to be true. By the time you get to chapter 5, verse 14, the believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. We have women mentioned specifically for the first time, though there may have been some women uh, before as well. The apostles' reaction is recorded in Acts 5, 41 and 42. Here's what it says. So they departed from the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Now, didn't Jesus talk about His name back in John 15? He did. They will do what they do to you for my name. Because of my name, they're going to persecute you. And we're told 
You'll remember they had just been commanded after being beaten not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. That's in verse 40. But verse 42 tells us that daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they kept on preaching Him, knowing that there would be some who would believe it, while others would reject it. So the result of that was that, quote, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and listen to this, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Where were they preaching? In and around the temple. And a lot of the priests who had been involved, no doubt, in their persecution earlier, hear the gospel and they come become believers. And the remainder of the book of Acts is devoted to describing the spread of the gospel among both Jews and Gentiles. And when you come to that section of Acts that talks about the Gentiles hearing the gospel, remember the story of Cornelius? He gladly embraced it. He accepted the words of the apostle. Peter preached to him, to his entire household. That would have included his family and his servants. And he became the first Gentile convert. From that point on, you read about the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, and you have the same thing happen in the Gentile world that happened in the Jewish world. Those in power among the Gentiles, leaders of cities and councils and so on, they rejected the message of Christ. They, were, they would persecute those who preached even throwing, throwing them in jail like in Philippi. But many, many people heard the gospel and they said, that's good news. I'm happy to hear that. I'm going to walk in that way. And the church spread all over the world. Maybe I can get this in. Char uh, I started to say Charles Barkley, not Charles Barkley, but William Barkley. He, made, he said that there were five accusations brought against the Christians in the first century. He mentions this in his commentary on John. Uh, number one, they were called insurrectionists because they refused to burn incense and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Number two, they were accused of being cannibals based on Jesus' words that his disciples were to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Number three, they were accused of practicing immorality because of false reports that the love feast of Christians was an orgy of sexual indulgence. Number four, they were said to be advocates of destruction by fire because they taught the world would be burned up by fire, 2 Peter 3.10. No surprise that Nero would blame Rome's great fire on the Christians. And then number five, they were charged with dividing families because some family members would become believers while others would not. That's mentioned, as I said, in his commentary on the book of John. So the early church, New Testament Christians, were indeed persecuted, just as Jesus said they would be. And the apostles sadly experienced many, many persecutions. And 
So far as we know, all of them except John died a martyr's death. And so what Jesus told them would come true. Now that's one of the great arguments to be made for the authenticity of Christianity. If anybody would have known that Jesus was a farce and an imposter, the apostles would have. Why then would they have been willing to give their lives for someone who was a fake? They knew Jesus. They knew what kind of a person he was, what he had taught, what he did, and all of that. So the fact that they were willing to die for his cause and his name gives us every reason in the world to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ.